Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. So today we're going to talk about um, Acts chapter 22. You can go ahead and if you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and pull that page up or if you're going to use your phone, head on to the internet. I know usually we don't invite you to look at your phone during service, but go for it. If you're pulling up the Bible, please do so. Go to Acts chapter 22. We'll be starting in verse 1. And um, so while you're looking that up, I have a question for you. Have you ever just had a day? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Have you ever just had a day? Am I talking about a good day or a bad day? Yeah, just uh, just a day. Like you get home and you're just like, I just had a day. It's never a good day when we say it like that. It's always a rough day. You know, one of those days where it just seems like life is just piling things on top of us. And sometimes it can get comedic, like how could this day get any worse? And then something happens to get worse. And it's so bad, you just kind of, all I can do is laugh at this point and like, Hope I wake up tomorrow and tomorrow is better, right? And then sometimes we have really bad days that are just like those, you know, gut-wrenching, soul-crushing days where we just, we want to move through it. I hope this never happens again. You know, I don't ever want to live through that kind of thing again. Um, I think we can all relate to having a bad day. There was a book growing up when I was a kid. It's still a book now that I'm an adult. It didn't stop being a book now that I'm an adult. But it's called The Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anybody know that book? Yeah. Uh, and it's all about this, this book. There's this kid who just has, he has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Everything goes wrong. You know, he wakes up with gum in his hair, and he trips on his skateboard getting out of bed, and he's eating breakfast, and, like, his brothers get prizes in their sugary cereal. Oh, but all I have is my incredibly sugary cereal that's going to hype me up for the rest of the day. Like, oh, uh, life's so hard, you know. But he, the, just things keep going worse and worse as he goes to school and all that kind of stuff, and every time things come to a head, and he's just done with it. He's like, that's it. I'm moving to Australia. And I'm like, dude, it's not going to get better just because you're moving to Australia. Like, you're going to have the same problems, and now you're living in a place where all of the animals are either poisonous or trying to kill you. I've seen Animal Planet. I know, okay? It's not going to get better because you moved to Australia, which then in my ADHD brain brought me to, I wonder what they said when the book was in Australia because you already lived there. Where are you going to move to? Like, move to literally anywhere else where the animals aren't trying to kill you all the time. Um, And I think that book resonates with many of us, if you've read it, because we can all relate to having a really bad day. Um, I used to think, when I was younger, that bad days always brought out the worst in people. I thought it was kind of one of those cardinal rules of life. If you have a bad day, then it will naturally bring out the worst in you. And it can. It definitely can bring out the worst in you. But the older I get... And the more really bad days I experience, and the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I've started to realize that bad days just bring out us. What's already inside us just kind of comes out. This is one one of the illustrations I used with the kids at VBS this week, is that humans, we're all like sponges. We soak up whatever's around us, and that gets inside of us, And then when life presses us, when it puts on the squeeze, whatever's inside us just comes out without us needing to think about it. So if we're full 
of anger and frustration and bitterness. When we get squeezed and have a really bad day, that's what comes out. But if you have the Holy Spirit in you, and the Lord is gradually, day by day, making you a little bit more like Jesus, that's called discipleship, then you'll start to notice when you have bad days that other things, good things come out of you when you get squeezed. Things like grace and patience and understanding and forgiveness and kindness. Bad days have a way of just squeezing out what's already inside us, and it can lead us to ask the question, you know, what, what is inside me? What am I noticing come out of me when I have a bad day? In Acts chapter 21, Paul is having a bad day. He woke up and went to the temple and then is fighting for his life and is literally being murdered. That's a really bad day. I have never experienced a bad day like that. Paul's back in Jerusalem, we learn, for the last time, and he doesn't know this, this is the last time, but this is the last time he'll ever be in Jerusalem. He is at the temple because there were some rumors circulating through Jerusalem about who he is and some things he was teaching that were completely false. And the leadership was like, we need you to do this thing, and then that will settle the rumors. And Paul is not obligated morally to do that thing. Um, it's, not, it's not a matter of, of good or evil. It's just a, we think you should do this in order to silence the rumors. And Paul is not obligated to do it, but as we learned last week from Pastor Phil, Paul loves Jesus so much and he loves his people so much that he is willing to go to great lengths in order to remove barriers that will keep people from hearing the gospel. So Paul flexes a bit on this non-essential and he says, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to, you know, and basically what he does is he, has, he shows up in the temple and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for these guys to complete their vows and get their head shaved and that kind of thing. So a week later when the vows are almost over, Paul is back in the temple. And earlier that day, he had been walking around Jerusalem with one of his traveling buddies who's a Gentile named Trophimus. And some people see him from, you know, across the street or across the square and they're like, this guy, Paul, is back again. These are people, these are Jews from the province of Asia who have a history with Paul. They chased Paul out of some cities earlier in the book of Acts, and they were so bent on persecuting him and stopping him from preaching the gospel that they didn't just chase him out of their town. When they found out he was in the next town over, they walked all the way there, and it's not just like you know, driving in an hour from tra- of traffic from you know, White Marsh to Towson. They walked sometimes a day or a half a day, just to get to the next city so they could persecute Paul and push him out of somebody else's town. That's how bent they are on stopping Paul from doing what they're doing. Then they're all back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they're like, this guy again. And so they see him walking around the city with a Gentile. Then later that day, they see him in the temple, and they put two and two together and get like 5,000. Because they assume, well, we saw him earlier with the Gentile, now he's in the temple, therefore, he must have brought the Gentile into the temple, which is just, complete, it's, an, it's an argument fallacy. There's so much wrong with that argument. It doesn't make sense. It's an incorrect assumption, totally baseless. But they see him in the temple. Trophimus is not there, but it doesn't matter. They see him in the temple, and they're like, we're going to get him. 
So they grab Paul and they start shouting, men of Israel, this is the guy. This is the guy who's been preaching against us Jews. He hates us. This is the guy who's been telling people to disobey the law. And he just brought a Gentile into the temple. And that last accusation just sets off a firestorm. And everybody starts to riot. They grab Paul. And the Bible says they're in the process of killing him when across the courtyard in, uh, in the fortress of Antonia, where their Roman guards are stationed, they hear this commotion. The commander brings his troops out. They grab Paul away from the mob, and it's not, they're not you know, really rescuing him. They arrest him and put him in chains, and the commander's like, oh, I guess I should figure out why I just put this guy in chains. So they, she tries to get the accusation out of the crowd. The crowd can't get their story straight because half the people there are just rioting because it's a riot, and it's a mob, and they don't even know why they're there. So he can't get anything out of these people. He orders his soldiers to take Paul back to the fortress where basically they're going to beat him until they can get a confession out of him to find out what in the world he did to start this mob. And as the Roman soldiers are trying to get Paul out of here, the crowd is so frenzied and frantic that they are literally willing to go toe-to-toe with Roman soldiers just to try to kill Paul. It's crazy. So they put him on their shoulders and they carry him up the steps to go into the fortress. And Paul finally has a moment with himself to the commander and he's like, can I speak with you for a second? He kind of sets the record straight with the commander. The commander thought he was somebody that he's absolutely not. He sets the record straight, and then he says, I would like to address the crowd. And that's where our story picks up today in Acts chapter 22. And it's important that you know all that stuff that I just said because Paul is not sharing what he's about to share because he got a nice invitation to do so. They weren't like, Paul, could you come and teach us today from the steps of the Antonia Fortress? That's not what happened. Nobody asked him to start speaking It has not been a relaxing morning. I'm going to guess no coffee, no donuts. Not a part of that. Just violence. It's a really bad situation that escalated really quickly. And probably the last thing on the mob's mind is, oh, let me hear what this guy has to say. But Paul stops for a second being carried into the thing, and he says, can I speak to these people? And he starts, he motions for silence, And miraculously, at least in my book, I think it's like a minor miracle, the whole crowd actually calms down and starts listening to what Paul has to say. This is, so far, a really bad day for Paul. Paul is getting squeezed. He is getting pressed. And what comes out of him is not his sinful nature, but as we'll see as we look into Acts 22, what comes out of him, what bubbles out of him on arguably one of his worst days is Jesus. He sets an example for us Christians to follow on our own bad days. So let's talk, let's see what Paul says to the crowd here. Verse 1, Acts 22, verse 1. He says, Brothers and esteemed fathers, listen to me as I offer my defense. And when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. He starts out addressing his own would-be murderers with brothers, esteemed fathers. He doesn't say, like, listen, you bunch of jerks. You know, he doesn't get an attitude. Interestingly enough, he doesn't even start, he doesn't even start right away with, this is a lie, this is a lie, this is a lie, and you're trying to put me to death on false pretenses. He doesn't even start there. He says, brothers, esteemed fathers. He is identifying himself with his people. They are his brothers. The the leaders of the temple, many of the people, some people he may have even trained under, 
They're his fathers in the faith. And he recognizes them for that, and he identifies himself. And in this example, I see Jesus coming out of Paul. Because Jesus himself identified with his people, even as they were putting him to death. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, he became a man. That's what we call the incarnation, right? Fully God and fully man. He was born as a baby. He grew up. Before he started his ministry, he's baptized, which is interesting. And then he was, he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, just like all of us are tempted. And the interesting thing about his baptism for me is like, why? You know, why did he get baptized? I mean, if you think about it, John's baptism, John the Baptist was baptizing people for repentance to help prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Well, Jesus is sinless, he has nothing to repent for, and he is the Messiah. So why is he getting baptized? It's because he is identifying with us. He says, I have come to be the offering that will redeem humanity. I have come to do this perfect work that nobody else can do. And so he's baptized to identify with us. Then he's driven into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus fully identified with us. He identified even with his own murderers, the very people who would falsely accuse him, put him through sham trials, and not even do the dirty work themselves, but then have Rome execute him through death on a cross. Jesus identifies with his own murderers. And I see this bleeding out of Paul as he says to his own would-be murderers, brothers, fathers, listen to me as I offer my defense. The word defense there is one of my favorite Greek words, um, It's apologia, and it does mean defense. It means to speak in defense of. And there's a reason I'm bringing that up. It's because he is about to offer his defense, which makes sense. He is being accused of doing some things that he did not do, and so now he is going to offer his defense in order to maybe lay some of these charges to rest. But the way that he brings, the the defense that he brings is not, at least in my book, if I was well, if I was Paul, I would do what Paul did. If I was me in this situation, I don't think this is probably what would have come out of me. And so I'm going to read his entire defense to you. I'm going to read the whole text. And then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to tell you what the question is right now so, um, so you can be thinking about it as I read this text. Here's the question I want you to think about as I read. What is Paul's defense? Okay? He says, I'm going to offer my defense. And he does it in such a way as to, you know, to bring his audience in, right? He's not alienating his audience. Even as they have been attempting to end his life, Paul retains his composure and addresses the crowd in such a way that gives them the best chance of hearing what he's about to say because it's a message that they need to hear. And he knows that because it's a message that he heard when he was on the crowd side and when he was in their place persecuting people who were following Jesus. So, What is Paul's defense? I'm going to ask you that in a minute. Let's read. Verse 3. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, 
and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so, for I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. Excuse me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well-regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment, I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's the defense that, Paul's, that Paul offers. So let me ask you that question. What was Paul's defense? Yep. Yeah. So some specifics there, he's a devout Jew, right? And generally speaking, he offers his testimony, his story. Here's what I find so interesting about this. Paul's defense is his story. That's his defense. In my brain, I'm like, okay, if I'm in his place, there are several accusations against me, one of which is threatening to get me murdered. Let me deal with that, right? So if, you th- if you're trying to kill me because you think I brought a Gentile into the temple and you think that, you know, I should be, you know, murdered for that, um, show of hands, who saw the Gentile in the temple? Anybody? Oh, oh, nobody actually saw him in the temple. Oh, that's interesting. So you're all liars, you know. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to go after the accusation and prove my innocence. That's probably, if I was in his spot, what I would be doing at that moment. But Paul does not provide, like, a legal argument that's countering every single accusation that these people are making against him, which is, to me, it's just crazy. Like, he's got the floor. People are listening. You got one shot to prove your innocence. And instead of going line by line and proving his innocence on every single charge, his one defense is his story. 
the story of how his own misdirected zeal caused him to act just like the people in the crowd, how that led him to oppose people who were following the resurrected Jesus, how Jesus showed up and showed Paul who he really is, and how Paul's life radically changed because of that encounter with Jesus. Paul's defense is his story. It's his testimony. Now, and I I should say, in sharing this testimony, like you said, he did relate that he is a devout Jew. So he actually is countering some of their arguments. You know, well, he hates us Jews and he hates the law and he's telling us to disobey the law. No, I'm not. I'm a devout Jew. In fact, you know, he says, I studied under Gamaliel, which is a major credential drop, and we'll talk about that in a second. So he actually does kind of answer a couple of the accusations, but the way it reads Those are kind of rest stops on the way to his main destination, which is telling these people about the gospel through the vehicle of his story. And to me, I'm like, you know, in that situation, what what would lead somebody, rather than, you know, share, "Here's here's my airtight defense that'll get me out of being murdered, what would cause someone to share your personal story instead when your own life is in danger. I think it's because Paul is not just speaking to this crowd to get out of trouble. If he wanted to get out of trouble, he could have just gone, you know, he could have let the soldiers take him into the fortress. Now he would have been beaten, and he will get beaten later. Uh, We'll talk about that next week. Um, He could have just let them take him inside, and then he could have been like, hey, remember, I'm a Roman citizen, stop what you're doing, and then, you know, kind of started the process of getting himself out of the hot water. So he's not speaking to the crowd to try to get out of trouble. I think what he's recognized is this is an opportunity to preach the gospel to the people that need to hear it. Because Paul has not only identified himself with his people, but he sees himself, I think, in the crowd because he's been on that side of the crowd before as he starts to relate to these people. I was the guy that stood by and watched Stephen be stoned, and I approved of it. I was the guy that went house to house and dragged men and women out and threw them in prison. I was the guy that was so bent on persecuting Christians. I went to the Jewish elders, and I, he says this, and, and because he's told us there are esteemed fathers in the audience here, some of the people that he actually went to to get the papers are probably there listening to what he says. So when he's like, look, You remember I went to get papers to go to another city and bring followers of Jesus back in chains? It's basically like, yeah, ask them. They're right there. This guy handed me the papers, right? He's relating this whole story and saying, I was exactly where you were. I get where you're coming from. I get that you're so zealous for the things of God. I get it. But I was that way too, and something changed my mind. And it's a message that he knows his people need to hear. And he is willing to take the one shot he has right now to change the crowd's mind on this whole accusation and get him killed. He uses his one shot to tell his story. What kind of transformation happened in this man's life where he could go from somebody that is cool with murdering Christians to somebody who is cool with with putting his own life at risk 
as long as he gets the chance to tell his story about how he met Jesus to his murderers before they kill him. What kind of transformation must have happened in this man's life? Only the kind of transformation that comes from meeting Jesus. Only that. He met Jesus and it changed the way he valued himself. It changed the way he valued his priorities. It changed the way he viewed other people. You can see, you can just see compassion for his people just oozing out of him as as this really bad day is squeezing and pressing him. And on this note, I want to take a real quick rabbit trail here. Did you know that your story is part of your defense as a Christian? Did you know that? Paul says, listen to me as I offer my apologia, my defense. He doesn't say, listen to me as I weave you a yarn. You know, listen to me as I tell you a tale. He says, this actually, literally in Greek, is his defense. His story is his defense. So that means that he believed this story is a defense. And I know I'm saying that a lot, but it's true. I'm just trying to drive this point home. Paul believed his story was his defense. Now, where else in the Bible do I see that our story is a defense as Christians? I know some of you know this verse because every time Pastor Phil says it, there's like a whole bunch of people in the audience that say this along with him. So if you know this, say this with me. Revelation 12.11 says that they, meaning Christians, defeated the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Our defense as Christians is the blood of the Lamb. That is the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And our belief in the work and in the person who did it, that's the blood of the Lamb. And two, the word of our testimony, our story of how we encountered the man who did that work the blood of the lamb, and the word of our testimony. That is our defense as Christians. How many times has the enemy tried to whisper to you, you're not really good with God because of what you did? Or you're not really good with God because of what you continue to do, what you continue to struggle with. If you were really good with God, then you would be perfect by now. How many times has he whispered that to you? How many times how many times has your own mind even tried to rake you back over the coals of things that are already done and under the blood? How many times have we bought lies about who we really are because in some part of our brains it's just like this Jesus thing is just too good to be true. I must still be under judgment. I must still be a terrible person. How many times do we tell ourselves that? How many times have you encountered somebody that's like, You know, I know you're religious now and you're cool on this Jesus thing or whatever, but like, I know who you really are because I remember who you were back when dot, dot, dot. How do you defend against those kind of accusations? With the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. You know what? That's who I was, but it's not who I am in Jesus. It is not who I am because of the work Jesus did on the cross. And let me remind you of my story. Let me remind myself of what Jesus has done in me, the proof that his Holy Spirit lives in me. Let me remind you of what he's done. Our story 
is part of our defense as a Christian. So brothers and sisters, get to know your story. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay that you're not perfect, okay? And I have to tell myself this because I'm struggle, I struggle with perfectionism. Being in Christ does not mean that I am perfect, but it means that his Holy Spirit is in me and I am in him, and gradually, day by day, I'm becoming a little bit more like Jesus. Get to know your story. It's not only an evangelistic tool, though it absolutely is. That's why we do Friends and Family Days, right? Where we invite you to come up here and get a microphone and tell us your story so we can celebrate what God has done and so we can share the gospel through the vehicle of what Jesus has done in our lives. So yeah, it's an evangelistic tool, and at the same time, it is also part of your defense as a Christian, the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. So get to know your story. Here's a real simple thing. I'm not going to preach this. I said I wasn't going to preach it in the first service, and then I started preaching it, so I have to stay on here. This is kind of the outline Paul uses, and I have actually preached on this before. Oh, boy, I wonder if that's my kid. Okay, cool. It's, yeah, it's me, me, or, me or Steph's kid, so there you go. Um, uh, yeah, sorry for saying that in the microphone now, so everybody knows. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you in advance for your forgiveness. Um, Paul breaks his story down into three parts, and I've actually taught this from the stage before, and, and we've done growth groups on it, so I'm not going not gonna to preach it, but three things he, he breaks it down into, who he was before Jesus, how he met Jesus, and then who he is after Jesus. That's how he structures his story. It's a great outline. You can use it. It's in the Bible. He used it here. He'll use it when he's brought before King uh, Herod Agrippa in uh, Acts 26, and um, it, it's great. You can use this outline uh, to make to write a book, you could write a chapter on each of these things, or you can distill it to a sentence on each of these. So if you get to know your story with this outline, again, it's not the only way that you can tell your story, but it's, it's a simple and effective way to do it. If you learn how to tell your story this way, whether you have a half an hour or you have 30 seconds, you can tell somebody your story of who you were before you met Jesus, how he intersected, how his path intersected with yours, and then how that has completely changed and altered the trajectory of your life. You can tell your story as simple as, this is who I was before I met Jesus, this is how I met Jesus, and this is who I am since meeting Jesus. So, I'm not going to preach that anymore. Let's move on. Paul, in his before Jesus life, I talked a little bit about this already. He says, I'm a Jew, I was born in Tarsus, I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, and as his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. So I already mentioned this. He drops a major Jewish credential. I was trained in Jerusalem, not just under anybody, but under Gamaliel. Now, we actually met Gamaliel back in Acts chapter 5. So if you want to go listen to that message, you can in our sermon archive or um, on our podcast or on our Facebook page. He says, uh, Gamaliel there actually, well, no, backstory, real quick. Gamaliel is one of, he's a leading member of the Sanhedrin. He is one of the most well-known rabbis at the time. He's one of the leaders of one of two Jewish schools of thought on the law, okay? This guy is big news. And he's so well-respected that back in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are arrested and the council is like, let's kill him, Gamaliel actually talks them out of killing the apostles. That's how how respected he was. That's how much people listened to what he had to say. They listened to him and weighed his, uh, weighed his words so much that they actually 
that it stops murder. That's amazing. So this guy is very well respected, and Paul says, I was trained under this guy. I know the law. I know, you know, I know the law probably better than a lot of you guys because I was trained in it. And the thing you're doing to me right now, I did the same thing. I did the same thing to people. And, he, and you know, he goes on to describe, right, I dragged men and women out of their homes. I threw them in prison. I was very zealous to honor God in everything, just like you are today. Again, identifying with his people, seeing himself in their position because he's been there. And later uh, in Romans uh, chapter 10, he, as he's talking about his people and the zealousness of his people, he'll later say, yeah, we're zealous for God, but not according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's a message here about misdirected zeal that I don't have time for today. Um, so I'll just leave that there. But he's basically saying, I get your zealousness for the Lord. I do, because I was there. And I probably did worse than you guys, because I actually went got papers and went to another city to drag them back and put them in chains before the council. Then the plot twist, right? Anybody's story have a Jesus plot twist in it? Yeah. I only see two hands. I'm assuming there's actually more and you just didn't lift your hands because we don't like lifting our hands here in Baltimore. Um, If you're a Christian, your story has a Jesus plot twist, okay? And that is a big deal. Here's Paul's plot twist. He he relates the story of the Damascus Road experience, right? I was on the road. I was going to go grab these people from Damascus and haul them back to Jerusalem in chains. And all of a sudden, there was a bright light, and I fell to the ground, and I heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Lowercase l. The voice replies, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Then Paul says, what should I do, Lord? Uppercase L. Something in his mind has changed when he hears the voice of the Lord. Did any of your minds change when you heard the voice of the Lord? Mine did. It kind of took me a while. My mind is very stubborn. But I remember when I clearly heard the voice of the Lord and my mind changed about sin and righteousness and about Jesus Christ. And that led to me surrendering to him. And as Paul does here, so Paul is completely blinded by the light. He has to be led to the hand to Damascus. And, and Paul continues to show, continues to show that this is, he's not like just some kind of heretic that's trying to bring down Judaism. He shows how Jewish this entire situation is because he gets into Damascus and he says, I met a man named Ananias and he was a godly man. He's deeply devoted to the law and he's well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. So it's not like I'm going rogue and being a heretic and just finding other people that have beef, you know, with Judaism and bringing them along for the ride. No, this guy that came to me that told me about Jesus is well-respected and he loves the law and everybody knows it. So Ananias tells him, and, and again, he continues, the, the, the Old Testament-ness of this whole thing is crazy. He says, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. The righteous one is another title for God, specifically the Messiah in the Old Testament. So he's connecting this thing that's happening to things that, uh, that the Jewish people were waiting for. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. And Paul is baptized, he is saved, and then we get a little bit of the after. Now, he doesn't, get, he doesn't give us an exhaustive after section here, 
because he goes right to after I return to Jerusalem. Well, he spends some time in Damascus teaching in the synagogues, and people were like, weren't you the guy that just came here to try and drag a whole bunch of us back? But he's like using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. People are like, wow, this is like something. Something's up because this guy is not the same guy that came here to try to get us, right? So then after Paul gets back to Jerusalem, he says, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. And yeah, they didn't. I mean, they, a lot of the church thought that Paul was just, he's just faking this because he's just trying to infiltrate our inner ranks and then he's going to try to, you know, snuff this whole thing out. So, I mean, they're kind of justifiably a little a little worried about Paul based on what he did to them before. Uh, and then Paul, uh, Paul kind of goes back and forth with Jesus a little bit, and he's like, look, man, where am I going to go? Like, everybody knows what I did. And then Jesus says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So you see how, Paul's, how Paul has completely revalued all these areas of his life. He used to be somebody that was going to persecute Christians, and now he's having a personal conversation with Jesus Christ, and he is going to get sent far away to people that previously Paul was not too happy about. He did not like Gentiles. There was a lot of beef between Jews and Gentiles, as we've talked about, so I won't, I won't get into it. You can listen to, I don't know, like any message from our Book of Acts series. It's, it's, all, it's all through this. Um, I'm going to send you to some people that you used to, that you used to not like, so you can tell them about me. So you can see how Paul has just been completely transformed and his priorities have changed and the way he values things and the way he has, he values people has changed. And on this day, as he's getting squeezed and pressed, this is the story that bubbles out of him. So here's my question for you, because I know the application here is like, well, how do I apply somebody else's story to my life? Like, should I go to Damascus and persecute Christians and hope for a bright light? No, of course not. You know, how do you apply this? Simply, there's a question that I sort of, I sort of, you know, threw out way way at the beginning of this sermon. When life presses us, it just brings out what's already in us. Not always the bad, sometimes it brings out the good. So here's the question we can all ask ourselves. When life presses me, what comes out? What does it look like? When I have a bad day and I get pressed, what comes out? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it unforgiveness? Is it, is it, a, is it frustration? Maybe that's not, because there is a kind of a righteous frustration that's okay, but like, you know, are you, do you get full of rage, gossip, slander? Does bad stuff come out of you when you get pressed on a bad day? Or does Jesus tend to come out of you on a bad day? When you get squeezed, do you find grace and compassion and love and forgiveness bubbling out of you from a place and you're like, that's really weird because I should be mad right now, but I'm not? Do you, have you had that experience of those kind of things coming out of you when life presses you? Or are we kind of a mixture of both? Sometimes we get pressed and the worst of us comes out and sometimes when we get pressed, the best of Jesus comes out. For me, it's both. I've had experiences with both this year. I had one where I got pressed on a bad day and something came out of me and my wife was like, that's weird. Like, I haven't seen that side of you for a while. And I was like, yeah, I didn't know that was still in me. I guess Jesus is trying to show me something. Which, by the way, is the responsible response 
when you see something come out of you that is not Christ-like, the very next question that God invites you to ask is, God, why did you let me see this? What do you want me to do with what just came out of me? And you can have that conversation with him, and he'll lead you through that moment. But also this year, I've had, I had one really bad day that stuck out in my mind, and I'll tell you the story really quick, and I'll spare the details because they're not appropriate. Um, but what came out of me on this really bad day was Jesus, and he gets the glory for it. Um, I was walking my dog one morning in March, and uh, my neighbor's dog bust out of their house and literally mauled my dog. Um, and I'm not going to get graphic with it. It was, it was terrible. I was, like, basically watching my dog die in front of me. And um, it was horrible. I got the dog in the house, had to take her to the hospital. She had to get stitched up in a lot of different places. Not a good day. Very, very bad day. And my neighbor, who owned the dog, like, kept coming over the house and checking in on us and being like, are you okay? How's Bailey? Is she, you know, is she had a surgery yet and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, like, they, you know, she and her husband offered to, to cover the, the medical bills for Bailey and stuff like that. Like, they were, they were very, very kind to us on a really, really bad day. And I'm... Having a conversation, I think it was the second conversation I had with my neighbor in my living room. Bailey's back at the hospital. I'm in the living room. And I sort of, I sort of had like an out-of-mind experience where I'm talking to this person, and I recognized that according to my flesh, what should be coming out of me is like resentment and bitterness and like, I know you're paying for the medical bills, but like, let me tell you what I really think and like, you know, just like letting you have it just so I can get this off my chest emotionally or whatever. But like, that's not what bubbled out of me. What bubbled out of me was grace and patience and understanding. And as I'm, and, and the desire, this was, this was the thing that tripped that kind of made me have like a weird double mind experience was I recognized that as she's sharing about her family, I am absorbing all of this information. And I said to myself, I know some things about my neighbors now that I didn't know before, and now I know how to communicate the gospel to them better. And as soon as I said that, my brain popped out and was like, that was weird. That's not what should be coming out of you in this situation. Like, why is, you know, you're, resp- you're indirectly, and it was an accident, it was not their fault, but like, you're sort of responsible for my dog being in incredible pain and my family being scarred for life and all this kind of stuff. And like, I'm over here like, how can I share the gospel with you? And that is not, that is not James' sinful nature coming out. That is only Jesus coming out of me in that moment. He gets all the glory for that. He gets all of it. Three weeks later, I'm walking outside. I get out of my car. My neighbor and I think her sister or sister-in-law are outside with their kids and they come over and they're like, how's Bailey doing? I was like, yeah, she's good. She got the stitches out, all that kind of stuff. And she, like, kind of stopped. And she looked at me kind of funny, and she was like, are you a pastor? And I was like, that's the go-to when anybody's really nice. Okay. Um, and I was like, well, yes, I am a pastor of Pastor of Echo Community Church in Perry Hall. And, uh, and she was like, I thought so, because you were really, really nice to us when you probably shouldn't have been. And in that moment, I was like, you know what? It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. And on that really bad day, Jesus came out. He gets the glory for that. I have no idea what that seed is going to do in my neighbor. No clue. But that just bubbled out of me when I got squeezed. And again, I don't, (coughs) excuse me. I don't say that to make myself sound good. I say that because 
I recognized in myself something that was coming out of me that only came from Jesus. There's no other explanation. And when I look at that and recount that story to myself, I'm like, wow, I really am in Christ, and Christ is really in me. This is more evidence upon years and years of evidence that Jesus is with me and that I am in him. Again, your story is your defense, right? It all kind of plays in here. So my question to you is when we get squeezed, when life presses us, what comes out? Is it Jesus? Is it our sinful nature? And then what do you think God wants you to do, you and I to do, with what came out of us? Is there a change he wants to make? Is there something that came out of us that we didn't know was there? Or we thought we had dealt with that just came out that, you know, might be rearing its ugly head again. What does Jesus want us to do with what came out of us? Excuse me, I'm still, I'm a little, my throat's a little scratchy. Not contagious, just, you know, this respiratory thing. So, excuse me. Um, let's finish up. Verses 21 through 23. Paul's finishing his story. He says, he relates how Jesus said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd listened until Paul said that word. Then they all began to shout, Away with him, or away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. They yelled, they threw off their coats and tossed handfuls of dust in the air. What just happened? Simply put, the crowd got triggered. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. The word is Gentiles. The idea that Jesus, the Messiah, is now ordering Paul to go to the Gentiles was too much. And maybe it wasn't even that idea. Maybe it was just the word Gentiles, because, I mean, that's what started this whole thing. They thought that he brought a Gentile into the temple. So as soon as the word Gentile happens, it's done. God has been trying to communicate through Paul the gospel message to these people to draw their hearts towards repentance and belief in Christ, and they hear one word, And they allow that to short-circuit everything that God wants to share with them. They get totally triggered. Now, what do we do with this part? And I need to be sensitive here, because we're going to talk about triggers for a second. Here's a responsible question that I think we can all ask ourselves. Are there any trigger areas in my life where I refuse to listen to the Lord? Like I said, the second Paul said the word Gentiles, that was it. They were done listening to what God had to say through Paul. They got violent again, and the soldiers have to carry Paul into the fortress where we'll pick up next week. So a trigger literally stops them from hearing from the Lord and from believing in Jesus. Triggers are an interesting phenomenon. Um, You know, sense, tastes, words, places, They can bring up unexpected reactions in us, and some of them are good. Like, nostalgia is one of my favorite triggers. Um, You know, you, like, get a smell, and you're like, oh, I remember when, dot, dot, dot. Or, you know, you hear the Batman, the animated series theme song, you're like, and you have that in your head, and you just, you know, you have good, you have some good moments. So some, some triggers can be good and can be pleasant, and some of them are absolutely not. They're the exact opposite, and they're tough to talk about because, and this is why, this is why I, I need to be sensitive here, because 
oftentimes triggers are triggers for a reason. You know, we didn't set out to try and get triggers. Oftentimes we're kind of unaware of why we have it. And sometimes we're aware of why we have it. And the reason we have that trigger area is kind of legit. I mean, I have a lot of friends who, who have left the church and as they've shared their stories with me about why they left the church, I'm like, okay, I get why when I talk about this particular thing, why it's a trigger for you. Because it brings up, you know, some horrible, some horrible memories and some ways that the church mistreated this person that I'm, you know, that I'm really just breaks my heart. So triggers are triggers for a reason usually. And a lot of times it's, it might not be our fault. Sometimes... In some cases, some triggers we just kind of have to learn to live with or how to manage. I mean, this is like psychological triggers like PTSD and things like that. Some things there are just, you know, we need to learn to manage them or live with them, and we can heal from them usually through a process, you know. Um, and I'll, I'll set that aside for the moment because what I want to talk about right now is what I'm going to call spiritual triggers. These are things that when... We sense that God wants, us, wants to talk to us about something in particular. We shut it down right away. It could be when a pastor teaches on something. You're like, mm, I'm not going to listen to that. could be when you're reading the Bible and you're reading it and God says, you know, dot, dot, dot. And you're like, I don't want to read anymore because if I keep reading, I'm going to be responsible for what I read. So you just get triggered and you shut it down. This is what I mean when I'm talking about spiritual triggers. And when it comes to spiritual triggers... Maturity, Christian maturity in Christ says that we need to hand our triggers over to God and allow him to mature us so that thing doesn't send us around the bend anymore and short-circuit what God wants to communicate to us. Again, talking spiritual triggers. Here's an example. Um, (laughs) I'm going to use this one example. I'm not going to list triggers, okay? I could. I'm not going to do it. My point in doing this is not to get a rise out of you or anything like that, okay? But... Let's just use this one, and then you can substitute anything else you want. Um, I know a lot of people who get triggered when the topic of giving comes up in church. Yeah. Uh, You know, God, you can talk to me about anything you want, except for my money. And, you know, if if we really, pastors really talked about everything in the exact same proportion that Jesus talked about it, you'd hear us talk about money a whole lot more, because Jesus talks a whole lot about money, because where your treasure is... There, your heart is also. So, but I know a lot of people who as soon as, like, I mentioned, thank you for giving and being faithful in your, in your giving. And, you know, if you're not giving, um, you know, I'd invite you to have a conversation and start your, you know, start talking to Jesus about your giving journey. And maybe some of us in this room are like, nope, that's not a thing I want to talk about because that's going to lead to Jesus telling me to do something I don't want to do and it's going to change my life and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of trigger can shut down what God wants to do in your life. Substitute giving for anything else. Again, I'm not going to list it. You can think of, you can think of them yourself. But here's, here's the thing I thought of that may help you kind of identify maybe what some of your triggers are. We have a, a Tuesday preview email that goes out if you're on our email list, and it tells you what we're going to talk about on Sunday. If you opened up that email and you saw Pastor James is going to bring an uplifting sermon about the tithe, and you went, I think I'm going to find a reason to not be at church this Sunday that is a trigger for you. Substitute whatever you want in there for giving, okay? That can represent a trigger. It can be something that when you hear it, whether it comes from a pastor or another Christian friend 
or a conversation you heard on the radio or something you read in the Bible or whatever, when that thing comes up, if you try to shut it down, that's a spiritual trigger for you. And Jesus wants to help lead you through that and mature so that thing doesn't short-circuit your Christian growth. Remember, Paul is trying to share the gospel with his people, and they can't get past one word, and it just blows up the whole thing. They could not get past one trigger in order to continue hearing and receiving from the Lord. God always... If you've, if you've ever preached a sermon before, and there are many of you actually in the audience that I know that have, God will always deal with you about what you're preaching before you bring it to the other people, right? So God was dealing with me about one of my triggers as I was preparing for the sermon. And I kind of, I guess the Holy Spirit sort of brought me to this realization that when I, when I get triggered and I allow my spiritual trigger to stop me from hearing the Lord, what I'm basically telling God is you don't have the right to talk to me about this. You don't have the right to talk to me about dot, dot, dot. That's what we're saying when we shut down those kind of spiritual conversations that the Holy Spirit wants to have with us. You don't have the right... And it's crazy to me, and I realized this as I, was, as I was preparing for this, like, when we do that, we're telling the Lord who died for us, who we opted in voluntarily into this whole thing, right? Jesus didn't force forgiveness and his kingship on us. He invites us to come be a part of the kingdom. So I opted into this whole thing, and I said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to live your way. I'm going to get off the throne of my life, and I'm going to let you sit there, right? But then when we get triggered and we shut down that conversation with Jesus, we're saying, okay, no, 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 not this thing. Get, get off. You know, get off the throne. I'm going to sit back down. You don't have the right to talk to me about this. I'm just going to sit here and be smug and do my own thing. That's basically what we're saying when we let these kind of things get in the way of hearing from the Lord. We're saying, Jesus, the Lord of me, my life, you don't have the right. How dare you? How dare you try to talk to me about this because dot, dot, dot. And friends, we as Christians, we need to learn to get past that. Because the longer you walk with Jesus, the more and more of your life you will begin to gradually turn over to him. And that's a good thing. Because he's good and he wants what's best for you obedience to the Lord and the things you see in the Bible, whether you're talking about giving or whether you're talking about the kind of entertainment you enjoy or, you know, hot-button issues in our country right now, politics, whatever it is, Jesus wants to talk to us about those things so that our thoughts can align more clearly and more accurately with his thoughts on the matter. So let me encourage you. I don't want to beat the dead horse here, but let me encourage you if you start noticing some areas in your life that are those spiritual triggers where you say, God, you don't have the right to talk to me about that, there's one thing that you can do that can help to start that conversation with Jesus again. If we've been saying, God, you can't talk to me about this, here's where the solution starts. God, I give you permission to talk to me about this. Invite him to, and he will. He will in the right time, and he'll do it Often, most often when I pray that prayer, I find that he does it very gently because I'm willing to receive it. He'll do it through his word. 
He'll do it through other Christians. He'll do it through your spiritual mentors. He'll do it through people who are in the same, you know, your, your, uh, your Barnabases, people who are at the same spot and walking along with you in the journey of life. He'll talk to you through the still small voice of his Holy Spirit in your heart. If you start noticing those things, simply say, Jesus, I give you permission to talk to me about this. God, through Paul, was trying to share the gospel with the Jews in Acts 22, but their trigger prevented them from receiving that from the Lord. Don't let your spiritual triggers keep you from receiving what God has for you. So, what comes out of us when life puts on the squeeze? And what spiritual triggers do we have, and do we need to turn them over to Jesus? Worship team, you can come. And uh, as they're coming, I just want to take like 10 to 15 seconds of just of quiet and just give us a chance to contemplate and say, Jesus, is there anything that you are speaking to me specifically about today? And to give us the moment to say, Jesus, I invite you to continue speaking to me about that thing. So let's just take 10 to 15 seconds of silence to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. I don't know what I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you about. But if he's brought it up to you, then it's okay. You can trust him with that. Ask him what you want me to do with what you're speaking to me about today, and he'll tell you. And he'll help you. He'll even give you the courage, he will provide the boldness, he'll provide the grace to help you move into that and walk into it so that you can be more and more like him. One thing that may have come to your mind, if you're under the sound of my voice, whether you're here in person or listening on our podcast or watching on Facebook, one thing that may have come to mind is if you're not right with God, you may be feeling what we call convicted. That means that you recognize You're hearing all these things about Jesus and and about his goodness and about how we're sinners and how he can save us, and there's something that's bubbling up in your heart that wants that. And you can feel very keenly a sense of your own sin. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're feeling that right now and you know in your heart that you would say, I know that I am not right with God because I have never asked Jesus to be my Lord. If you're feeling that, and you're feeling that pull towards making him your Lord today, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer that can help you do that. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I simply want to tell you how you can come into the kingdom, how you can be forgiven, how you can be set free and made new in Jesus Christ. There's only two things you have to do. The first thing is repent. Repent means simply to change your mind about sin, to turn away from it, and to turn towards Jesus Christ and his ways. The second thing you need to do is believe. Believe that you need to be saved. Believe that Jesus can save you. And believe that if you ask him to, he will. So as the worship team just plays quietly behind me, If you're ready to pray that prayer and ask Jesus to save you, you can do that right now.
in your own heart. You can use your own words. Just tell him. Say, Jesus, save me. If you want a little more help or direction, you can simply say, Jesus, save me. I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I need you to save me. Please save me. Please forgive me. Please make me right with you and come and live inside me so I can live the way that you want me to. You can pray a prayer as simple as that in your own words. And if you believe in Jesus and you repent of your sins, if you've done that for the first time today, you are saved. You're saved. Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for your sins and he has taken that payment and he's applied it to your account. And you've been forgiven. And you might be feeling something. You might be feeling hope. You might be feeling something that feels like peace or like joy bubbling up from your spirit. And that is proof. That's part of your story now. That's proof that you have been saved through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And if that's you, I want to celebrate that with you today. You are saved. There's not another thing that you have to do to be saved. But I would ask if you would be brave enough to do so. I'm going to count to three. And if you made that decision for the first time today, I would love it if you would lift your hands on three and just make eye contact with me. You don't have to do that to be saved. You're already saved. But that's just a way for me to be able to celebrate with you the decision that you make. It's the best decision that you can ever make. And your story, the trajectory of your story is going to change now because of that decision that you made today. So on three, if that's you with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, if that was you and you prayed that prayer today, I just want you to slip up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your hand right back down. One, two, three. Anybody pray that prayer with me this morning? Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Eyes open, heads up. Guys, we have, uh, we have a sister that came into the kingdom today. Isn't that awesome? There's nothing better than when Jesus changes our lives. Right now, we're going to close with one more song. Um, our prayer team is coming, and our welcome team is coming. Um, if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team, are, these are men and women who uh, will hold what you share in confidence. They'll pray for you. They'll support you. Um, so as the worship team begins to play, if you would like prayer for anything, you can simply come down and find uh, one of these men and women on my left and my right, and they'll pray with you. Um, we're going to receive the morning's tithes and offerings as well, so our worship team is coming to help us in that. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing one more song, and then I'll come back and close us. If you're willing and able, why don't you stand with us as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for paying the price we can never pay so that we can be redeemed and set free. Thank you for a soul that has been redeemed today. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst, Lord. Thank you for VBS this week and for the dream that took so many years to happen. 
it happened this week and people heard about you all over this place. Thank you for what you're doing in our community. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We return, we return a portion of what you've given us to simply say thank you and to be obedient to your word. Thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for saving us. In your name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.